The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code BOOKS. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of The Good Lord Bird, the National Book Award-winning novel by James McBride. I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. In our New York studio is David Haglin, Slate's Browbeat editor. Hi, David. Hi, Dan. And Emily Bazelon, a Slate senior editor. Hi, Emily. Hey, Dan. Before we begin, some news about a future audiobook club. Tickets are now on sale for our first ever live audiobook club. We will be in Seattle, Washington at Town Hall on Thursday, February 27th. It's the week of the AWP conference in Seattle. This is going to be an extremely fun show. It's going to be Hannah Rosen and me, and then we will be joined by Hugh Howey, who is the author of the mega best-selling science fiction series, Wool. It's also really great, in addition to being mega best-selling. But we're not going to talk about Wool. We're going to talk about Slaughterhouse-Five and Kurt Vonnegut. Hugh Howey is sort of a trendsetter in that he encourages his fans, to write fan fiction in the universe of wool, and then he lets them sell it on Amazon's Kindle Worlds platform. And this very month, actually, Amazon is publishing Hugh Howey's fan fiction set in the Kurt Vonnegut universe. It's called Peace and Amber. So anyways, he has thought a lot about Vonnegut and about writing about Vonnegut and in Vonnegut's world. And so we'll talk Slaughterhouse-Five and fan fiction and science fiction in general. I think it should be really fun. Tickets are a mere 10 bucks, And you can buy them by going to slate.com slash seattleabc. That address again, slate.com slash seattleabc. Thank you for indulging this interlude of ad sales, Emily and David. Hey, whatever we can do for the cause. So... The Good Lord Bird. As always in the audiobook club, if you don't like being spoiled, please listen after you read. If you love being spoiled, then listen now. The Good Lord Bird is a picaresque novel following the adventures of Henry Shackelford, Henrietta Shackelford, The Onion, and his years spent with The Old Man, The Captain, Old Osawatomie John Brown, from 1856 in Kansas to 1859 in Harper's Ferry. The novel is narrated by Henry, an old man now, writing his memories of that time in vivid, rough-hewn language that is extremely quotable, if not always in polite company. So I want to start by talking to both of you guys about the Onion's language throughout this book. What was your favorite Onionism, Emily? Well, I was going to read a passage from late in the book, and I could have picked something more colorful, but I really liked the characterization of John Brown. It's very irreverent. I mean, the book irreverent is like, along with picaresque, the main adjective you could use to describe this book, but I particularly enjoyed the descriptions of Brown. Nobody in America could outdo John Brown when it come to tooting his own whistle. He let the Negroes have their moments, course, and after they blowed out more hot gas and done more grousing about the white man and slavery in that one day than I was to hear in the next 30 years, it was his turn. I was dead tired and hungry by then, of course, having had nothing to eat being around him as usual, but he was the main event, and that being so, they was all licking their chops for him when he shuffled to the front of the room, fluffling his papers, while the room lay quiet, full of expectation. He wore a string tie for the occasion, and sewed three new buttons on his tattered suit, of which they was all different colored buttons, but for him that was sporty. He stood upon the old rostrum, cleared his throat, then declared, the day of the Negro's victory is at hand. That was sporty for him. <laughs> David, what was your favorite onionism? So I had a bunch to pick from, but I liked his 
physical descriptions of people. And in particular, on page 112, again, he's talking about John Brown, but he's talking about a rare occasion in which John Brown smiled. And he says... Oh, the, I loved these. Yeah, this is good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says, the old man stretched his lips in a crazy fashion. It weren't a real smile, but as close as he could come. Never saw a mountain-out smile up to that point. It didn't fit his face. Stretching them wrinkles horizontal gave the impression of him being plumb stark mad. Seemed like his peanut had poked out the shell all the way. He was soaked. It's, and it's that line. I mean, it seemed like his peanut had poked out the shell all the way. I don't even know exactly what, that what that mean? means. It I'm has not like sure. weird sexual connotations. It's a great line. Yeah, and I don't know if he, if the peanut is the skull. Like if he's smiling, his teeth are coming. I'm not I even sure. I think it's sure. that it's like his, his craziness comes yeah, out of his, his head. inner craziness. Right. Yeah. So hilariously, my favorite onionism is also him describing John Brown. <laughs> He really describes John Brown really well. It's on page 195 when John Brown shows up back to Missouri where um, Onion has been hanging out for a while. And uh, he describes just how terrible he looks. His beard is all long and terrible. His clothes are more awful than ever. And then he says, in other words, he looked normal, like his clothes was dying of thirst and he himself was about to keel over out of plain ugliness. Excellent. Yeah, so the language in this book obviously is extremely energetic to the point where I often was like, how did James McBride keep this up over 300 some pages? Like there's just so much verbal energy in basically every sentence. And it's so inventive that I sort of thought, well, did he do it a huge amount of research? And like every time someone said something colloquial and weird, he would just pull it out and put it in a file and say, I'm going to use this. Or is this just somehow come out of James McBride's head? Um, and what did you guys take out of the language of this? And did it feel at any point to you like too much or were you with it all the way? I had trouble getting into the tone of the novel in the beginning. And I think part of it's because it's in dialect. And so I kept thinking of Huck Finn and of Jim and Huck Finn and Twain. I mean, this is a very resonant with Twain novel. Yeah. But I was having trouble entering into that kind of language through a different modern-day author. But then I just got swept along. It was sort of like a river. Once you waded into it, it's, as you're saying, it just sort of marvelously flows. And I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about where it was coming from. I mean, one imagines James McBride just kind of like going with it, right? Because <laughs> it just feels like this spigot that's not turning off. Uh-huh. I was with it right away, actually, and it's probably my favorite thing about the book. And I got the sense that he probably did a lot of research, but then also allowed himself, and I don't know, I haven't read any interviews with him or even read any reviews of this book, but I got the sense that he allowed himself a great deal of freedom within that language. I am guessing that a lot of these words and these phrases and terms are his inventions. Some of them he probably found, I would think. Some of them also sounded oddly contemporary, but I didn't go look up my etymology dictionary and check, but there are references to busting caps, which maybe that's an archaism that has come back. I don't know. Didn't guns used to actually have like caps? Yeah, so it may <laughs> be. But like I said, I'm not actually sure whether maybe people used to speak that way and then it's come back. But he also at one point refers to someone as a hot mess. And I don't know the origins of that term. I think of it as contemporary. Mm -hmm. But I didn't find those things distracting. In fact, sort of the opposite in that I think that dialect can be so constraining. Sometimes you read it and you feel like the author is trying so hard to be precise right. and using abbreviations everywhere. And, and it just feels like a straitjacket. And here it didn't feel that way at all. 
it felt really fluid. Yeah, this is such a loosely written book, and that's one of its joys. Yeah, it felt like not like a straitjacket, but like a playground where he just kept discovering other crazy new things he could do or say in this voice that it just kept expanding and expanding and expanding to include all the different ways that he wanted to describe things and all the different discoveries about himself and about slavery and about the world that he wanted Henrietta Henry the Onion to discover, which is one of the things I really loved about it. So Henry, this kid, John Brown finds him in Kansas when he comes into a tavern and gets in an argument with a man in that tavern. And Henry's dad is killed. Henry's, I think, 10. Is that right? When this yeah, first encounter Yeah, 10 or happens? 11. He's not quite sure of his age or his right. birthday. Right. Like, he mentions at one point that, like, many slaves of the time, he doesn't even know when his birthday is, so it's just January 1st. So Henry's dad is killed, and John Brown takes Henry with him, but believes him to be a girl, Henrietta. He's described at one point in a section that I really liked, and I'm going to read right now, that explains sort of why John Brown makes this decision about Henry, Henrietta, and never really thinks about it anymore, even though there are many points it seems like when any fool could look at this boy and see that he is a boy. He says, uh, this is on page 19, See, my true name is Henry Shackelford, but the old man heard Pa say, Henry ain'ta, and took it to be Henrietta, which is how the old man's mind worked. Whatever he believed, he believed. It didn't matter to him whether it was really true or not. He just changed the truth till it fit him. He was a real white man. So that gets into a lot of things about this novel, but it does, at least in the beginning, get into once John Brown makes up his mind about something, whatever he sees or whatever filters into that, into his vision or experience, doesn't really matter. He has set his mind on this, and he sets his mind that Henriette is a girl, and he calls her the onion, and, and that is the way she lives her life for most of the next four years up until Harper's Ferry and his, her escape. And that makes gender and, you know, the transgender nature of Henrietta Onion's character a key theme in the book, right? Right. So where did you think that that went, Emily? What purpose did you think that served? Did you think it was just a character note that allowed this character to see things that maybe he otherwise wouldn't have seen and be present in places he otherwise wouldn't have been present? Or did it have more to say about slavery itself and about the way that slaves lived in that time? I mean, the first thing I kept thinking of was Shakespeare and all the plays in which men are dressed as women, you know, a convention of the time so that male actors could play those roles. But then you can play with these concepts and get at these questions of what it means to redefine yourself in this way or let other people redefine you. But then I think in the second half of the novel, McBride hits really hard on this theme of he uses the quote, be a man, yeah. four or five different times in the mouths of different strong female black characters who are exhorting the men around them to stand up. And I think that one of the things McBride is saying is that you actually can't be a man if you're a slave, that there was no possibility of what he's defining as truly masculine manhood available to slaves. And so taking it away from Onion is also allowing him to explore how it kind of got ripped away from everyone in that position. It's a really harsh assessment. And it's also one that the nature of the masculinity he's talking about is something that I guess I would, as a modern day feminist, want to challenge. But it's pretty profoundly woven throughout the whole book yeah well huh. the first person who onion hears being told to be a man is a conspirator 
in Pikesville, Missouri, who's about to be hanged, who is not taking his execution as well as his other co-conspirators would like. And one of them tells him, be a man. I mean, that's a pretty potent notion that the only way for you to be a man as a slave is to face up to your execution bravely. Right. But it's a woman who says it. Right. So I took it differently. For one thing, I took it as only partly gendered, since we do first hear it coming from a woman who is herself, you know, being a man in that moment. And Henry makes a point of emphasizing that. And also, I got the sense that McBride, through this novel, he seems to see slavery as tearing away the manhood of many of these slaves, but not making it impossible. Yeah, that's a better reading, probably. But I'm struck, I mean, really late in the book, Onion is desperately wanting to reveal himself to one of the daughters of John Brown, who he's fallen in love with. And he says... I was going to turn about, turn over a new leaf, be the man that I really was. But I couldn't, for it weren't in me to be a man. I was but a coward living a lie. When you thunk on it, it weren't a bad lie. Being a Negro means showing your best face to the white man every day. And so then there's this whole discussion of how the white man makes you just into a thing, like a dog or a shovel or a horse. And inside you, then it does make a difference how you feel. But I feel like he's playing there with the idea and just this refrain of being a man and how these women, Harriet Tubman shows up and says it to him later on in the book. It's like these black women are playing the role of the real hero and the resistors and the men are failing at that job. There are black men in this novel who do come through in one way or another and you know, during the raid on Harper's Ferry, there are black men involved in that who stand with John Brown till the very end. Even all the free blacks who come from Baltimore on the train who are willing to join in this rebellion, though, when the plan doesn't work out, they hightail it back up the tracks. But there are men who fulfill this one specific version of being a man. It's just, I think that one of the points in the novel is that it always comes at a price. And in the era of slavery, if you're a slave, you can be a man, but it will almost certainly cost you your life, right? So at one point, Henry says, truth is that lying comes natural to all Negroes during slave time, for no man or woman in bondage ever prospered stating their true thoughts to their boss. That's one of his justifications for why he doesn't think it was so weird that he acted like a woman for three or four years, that every slave is hiding their true self. And when the time comes for you to expose your true self, to your boss, it's probably going to cost you your life. And if that's your definition of manhood, if being your true self and standing up for your liberty is your definition of manhood, it's probably going to kill you. And that may be a fight worth taking. One of the arguments of this book is that there are times that it is a fight worth taking, but the result during slave times was always going to be the same. Right. That's true. And one of the appealing and tricky things about Onion is that he is very unwilling to die. Oh, yeah. Right. Which we identify with who wants to die. And right. yet it means that throughout the novel, he is looking for ways to escape, to get away from John Brown. And as you're reading those passages, at least for me, part of me thinks, yeah, why should he sacrifice himself to this pretty unhinged fight that John Brown is planning that seems to have so little support? Right. One we know also... that has no hope of success. But I also feel like this novel flirts with the idea that John Brown's raid could have succeeded on its own terms, by which I mean that what Brown was after was getting the slaves of Virginia to rise up. And Brown changes the day of the raid in a way that makes it impossible for Harriet Tubman to arrive. And this is true. I 
couldn't believe this, but I went and looked it up. He meets with Frederick Douglass the summer before this planned raid and begs Douglass for help, and Douglass turns him down. Now, maybe that was like a perfectly sane and rational decision Douglass made. On the other hand, because there are all those colored people lining up on the train tracks who almost make it to the raid, but then turn back for good reason, because they've missed their signal, right? And Onion has screwed up the password. There's a sort of like farcical almost way in which the raid doesn't come off as planned. But McBride takes you up to the edge of the idea that if all these free and black slaves had shown up, that it would have been a different story. And I actually found that really tantalizing to think about in just as revisionist history. I was going to say there are 60 or 70 people in that train, I think, at least, who turn away because Onion forgot to tell John Brown about the password. I think you're right. He does flirt with this idea that it could have been, if not exactly successful, I mean, what would success mean? Who knows? But it could have been much more successful than it was. I also think that to Frederick Douglass, of all the people who are, at least in theory, on the right side in this book, he is probably the least sympathetic portrayal. Completely. Boy, does he, does he come off he bad in this book. He takes it. Yeah, in this way that's really surprising. I was like, it was scrambling all my eighth grade civics notions of Frederick Douglass. It was really right? harsh. And I don't, as I'm sure it did for you guys too, this book did make me curious about the historical consensus on a lot of these things, which I have yet to look up. But... I was completely unfamiliar with that take on Douglas, and he did not come off well. That he's a drunken lech who's at one point is described as having a really big head for such a short man. Well, and also as someone who refuses to take any risks. I mean, McBride presents Onion, and I think if there's an omniscient narrator, all of us, as ambivalent about Brown. Was he this crazy old man who could never have pulled it off? Or was he someone who was actually a visionary? And was this a moment that black people should have for once trusted the white guy, even though he doesn't really understand them in a lot of ways? I don't think McBride really comes down on one side or the other. And I did start reading about John Brown. I mean, one of the great things about this book, I think, is that it could make you really curious about him. And there is a recent history about him that has really tried to make him seem like he was onto something or he could have been. And also, this is 1859. I mean, this event, failed as it was, precipitated the Civil War. And because Brown was able to make a bunch of speeches at his trial and talk about what inspired him, he propelled the abolitionist movement forward in a way that it hadn't gotten that kind of attention before. But so I guess the question is, what other standard of success could there have been in this semi-revisionist view of John Brown's raid, that it was tantalizingly close to succeeding on a greater level, what could that have meant for all of those black men, the men who almost fought but didn't? No matter what, it would have meant their certain death, and it would have had no greater effect on history than John Brown's raid already had, which is that it really did spur the Civil War like a year later. So, like, Oh, I guess... see, I don't know if that's right. I mean, look, this is all made up. But in this book, there's this idea of, well, they could have all escaped into the mountains of Virginia, which John Brown knew. Mm -hmm. And what is not happening on the page but imagined is a mass uprising of slaves, which 
if you are someone whose people have been oppressed and who, like every other oppressed people, did not have that mass uprising, I mean, this is the way I feel about the Holocaust, right? That there are only these small stories of resistance. And why is that? And when you think about, you know, oppression, it completely makes sense rationally. But you have this emotional attachment to the idea that somehow people should have stood up for themselves. You kind of want that in some desperate, not rational way. And I think this book opens up the possibility that that somehow could have happened. And if Virginia had been emptied of its slaves, the whole slave economy, the whole cotton plantation economy of the South could have been dismembered, that the Civil War could have progressed differently, and that slaves and free blacks could have played a much more major role in their own emancipation. Yeah, that's exactly uh, how I took it as well. I mean, there was an interesting piece written for the New Yorker's website after Django Unchained came out. And I'm trying to remember who wrote it, but he made the argument. What bothered him about Django Unchained was that Django was presented as exceptional and that, in fact, there were many slaves who resisted, who wanted to fight, who tried to fight, and that this idea that this was actually ahistorical is what was wrong. Make of that what you will in terms of the movie and everything else, but part of the reason that idea can exist is because there is this general impression, there is a sort of in the popular imagination, I think the idea that, well, there was slavery and then the Civil War happened and, you know, Lincoln freed the slaves. Right. Right. And so one of the things that a more successful, even more brutal and more deadly version of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry would be to put an end to that notion. I mean, if if it did loom that much larger, if many more black people had been involved, then that would have changed, I think, the historical narrative in ways that I think McBride is sort of is, drawn to, yeah, right? And, and wants to exactly wants us to think about. Yeah, that's Jelani Cobb who wrote that piece that you're talking about in the New York. Ah, Times. I was going to say I thought that, but then I was afraid yeah. I was wrong. I wanted to make one point before we moved off completely from this discussion of Henry's trans, you know, his gender disguise. Which is that his petticoats and yeah. bonnet. Yeah. Which is that all of the black people in the book see that he's a man. The see women yes, especially. immediately, they all especially know the immediately. black women. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They all know right away and the white people do not. And it's very clear that this is because the white people are not really looking at him. Right? They just see his dress and don't look any closer. But at the very end of the book, Henry goes to see John Brown in prison. And he says that uh, John Brown smiles for maybe the first time, in, in at least in a real way. And he also says that he thinks John Brown knew who he was for real the very first time. I thought that that scene was very powerful. Wait, for the first time or that he knew who he was the whole time? The whole time. Yeah. Yeah, from the first. Yeah. Let me just quickly read this. It was the first time I ever saw him smile free, a true smile. It was like looking at the face of God. And I know then for the first time that him being the person to lead the color to freedom weren't no lunacy. It was something he knowed true inside him. I saw it clear for the first time. I knowed then, too, that he knowed what I was from the very first. So that moment, if you take Onion's word for it, changes our whole sense of Brown, yeah. I think. And... I found that scene very powerful, but it also highlighted something of a frustration for me, which is that while Brown is described in these vivid terms and is a vividly rendered character, he's not as complex in this book as I think he maybe was in real life. And, and to some extent, I, I don't 
blame McBride for that. He chose to tell this story through this very particular character, and it's that character story that we get. But it is one of the limitations of that approach, I think, that we don't get Brown's thoughts. You know, in, in the end, we get a maybe slightly simplified version of this character who's seen as sort of a religious nut with a good heart and maybe not a lot more than that. It's an interesting question because, I mean, one of the things the book, of course, is pushing against in a couple of passages and by its very existence is the way that black stories are often told through white eyes, right? And and John Brown's story is a pretty exceptional story of that era, but John Brown's story has been told before. There are multiple biographies of John Brown. There's Cloud Splitter, Russell Banks's whole novel in the voice of John Brown. And so it didn't bother me that much. Like, I felt like if I wanted to get a fuller picture of John Brown, there were other places I could turn to do it. And there's that one section where Onion's at one of his rallies in Philadelphia or somewhere um, where he's trying to raise money for the cause. And he describes how, you know, it's just a long rally of people crying about the fate of black people, but there's no actual black people there. And the few black people who are there are just servants standing on the sidelines. And he says it was like a big, long lynching. Everybody got to make a speech about the Negro, but the Negro. And so I don't mind to have this this particular version of the story of Harper's Ferry and John Brown's rebellion through the eyes of not just this black character, but all the black characters around it trying to deal with the situation. You know, all the care, all the blacks in Harper's Ferry who are freaking out about John Brown showing up because they know that when this inevitably fails, it, everything is going to go to shit for them. And they're completely fucked because John Brown showed up in Harper's Ferry. Like, that's a great moment of of truth that no matter how right John Brown was and no matter how virtuous his cause was, which is to say was maybe the most virtuous cause of all time, mm-hmm. he still fucked things up for a lot of people in ways that he maybe did or did not think of, but that were very real. You know, bloody Kansas was not just bloody for the settlers. It was bloody for the black people who were killed all over the place because of the things John Brown did. And Harper's Ferry must have been a really hellish place to be if you were a slave after that raid happened. And Virginia in general. And I mean, I think that's an important story to tell. Yeah, there's a lot of cracking of eggs in this book, right? The notion of collateral consequences and damages and what that actually feels like to experience. So Emily and David, let's stop for just one second for a word from our sponsor, to whom we're very grateful, Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own website or online portfolio. They have a special deal for listeners to the Audiobook Club for a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on Squarespace. You just go to the special URL, squarespace.com slash books, or use the offer code books. It's easy to remember. And you, once again, will get a free trial and 10% off your first purchase. So Squarespace, start a trial with no credit card required. You can start building your website today. You can use their drag and drop interface to rearrange everything on a page to build your website easily and use their app to switch and fix things on the go. They also have a 24-7 support team in New York that does live chat during the week and fast email support through the day and night. So once again, please use Squarespace and use our URL so that they know you are listeners to our show. That special URL is squarespace.com slash books, or use the offer code books. So let's go back. I have a question for both of you guys. You talked briefly, Emily, I think, about the farcical nature of Onion 
literally forgetting the password and screwing up the entire raid. And there are a lot of ways in which the tragedy of history is played for comedy in this book 150 years later. Obviously, there's a lot of tragedy in the book, too. But but what do you guys think in general about books that play the awful for laughs in a way that this book often does? Does it bother you? Do you love it? I kind of love it. I kind of love it when it's done well, right? I mean, there are books and movies that do this poorly, and when it doesn't work, it's painful. But when it's pulled off... It's very liberating, right? Because then you get the full dimension of the human experiences that any mass tragedy like slavery has to include. I also think it only works because of the time and distance that we have now from this suffering. And James McBride, I listened to a great interview he did on NPR, and he talked about how he thinks only a black man could have written this book right now the way it is. And I think that's totally right. And actually, it's one of the things that's really a value about it, too. Dan, you you mentioned before that, I mean, John Brown was a white man who failed. I think the book actually takes seriously the idea that it did spark the Civil War. Right. And so in that sense, may have ultimately succeeded. I mean, I think that the book seems sympathetic to him in the end. But he is a, a white man who showed up and brought a lot of you know, Cirrus. Yeah, to a lot of <laughs> mostly black people, although a fair number of white people, but, you know, they were slaveholders, so take that for what you will. But in that way, it is darkly, darkly comic in a way, right? I mean, because it is a failure, because this is this white, you know, righteous white man who wants to come and be the savior, that maybe gives this whole incident a sort of comic frisson that, that McBride exploits that would be different with other stories about American slavery. One of the great instances of comedy in this book, I think, are the times that poor Onion compares his life when he actually is in bondage with his life when he is freed from bondage and then has to ride around with John Brown around Kansas eating squirrels and listening to John Brown pray for like an hour. And there's this amazing section that really like floored me when I read it, which is it's on page 146. This is the section where he's in Missouri and Pikesville in the saloon hanging out with Pie and Miss Abby and everyone. He's talking about how Miss Abby is a slaveholder, true enough, but she was a good slaveholder. I was back in bondage, true, but slavery ain't too troublesome when you're in the doing of it and growed used to it. Your meals is free. Your roof is paid for. Somebody else got to bother themselves about you. It was easier than being on the trail, running from posses and sharing a roasted squirrel with five others while the old man was hollering over the whole roasted business to the Lord for an hour before you could even get the vittles. And even then, there weren't enough meat on it to knock the edges off the hunger you was feeling. I was living well. Sounds like prison. It does. I mean, it's so fascinating to me, this notion that I think I just haven't read in a book before, which is obviously true, which is the way in which... For people who spent their lives in bondage, you get so blinkered to the way the world could be that you find it comfortable enough that to upset that apple cart is more than you can deal with or or even worry about. And I thought that point was just made really, really well by this book in a way that I hadn't read before. Well, See, I, t- book... I took it slightly differently. Oh, good. Oh, go for it. I thought those passages, and there were more than one, were very striking. But I ultimately took them to mean that it's not really that there was any comfort in the situation of the slave, but that there were really no other options. Well, and also that eating and staying warm are really (laughs) pressing needs, right? right? I mean, there's a lot about just food and are you going to freeze through the night, right? And the way that's great. I mean, I loved that part. Yeah. So you can resist, but you're going to die. Right. 
and it seemed like McBride was really, you know, exploring and reflecting on that that question we were discussing before, why wasn't there a larger mass uprising than there was? Can we talk about Sibonia? Speaking of resisting and dying. Yeah. So when Onion is in this Miss Abby's whorehouse world, there's a pen of slaves out back who are sometimes getting auctioned off or getting hired out, but living in just total filth and squalor. And I mean, poverty isn't even the right word for it. And among them sits this woman named Sabonia who's playing the fool. She's playing the totally crazy person sitting on a box in the mud. But it turns out that she is all the time scheming about how there can be a small uprising among this particular group of slaves. She gets caught and they decide they're going to hang her. But they can't get her to confess and give up any of her co-conspirators. So there's this real kind of iron rod of bravery that runs through her. And she, I think, is meant to be a kind of repost to all of the passivity around her. And certainly to Onion, who at this point is, as you were saying, kind of living high, in love with one of the prostitutes, not bothering himself with anyone else's injustices. In fact, putting himself above the slaves down in the pen and getting annoyed when they take him to task because he's proven he thinks that he's so much better than them because he's in the house. Exactly. And he's a mulatto, right? He has relatively light skin. I mean, McBride does that whole trope of African-American, or I should say, slave identity really well. And as is Pie, the woman he loves, the prostitute that he loves, is also uh, very light-skinned and sees herself as above the slaves out in the pen. And then there's a very striking moment where Henry sees her in what we might be inclined to think of as a rape, but that's not how it's depicted. Not at all. But she's having sex with the overseer. With the very dark, kind of uneducated, scary overseer, right? Who's black. Is Darg, is he a black man or what? Yeah, he's black. Okay. Dan, you agree with Emily? I believe that is correct, yes. But he does have a sort of He's, um, yeah, he's rules over the slaves in the pen. Yes, exactly. Okay. And he's whipping her and Henry says she's enjoying it. And it's seems... And it's her guilt offering, yeah. right? Because she has also been the person who betrayed Sabonia, we think, has sold out Sabonia yes. and the plot, the uprising to a judge she's currying favor with. This right. whole section in Pikesville is extremely rich with archetype and import for Onion's later stories. Like, one of the things that I really liked about this section is that it is the section of the book in which there is no John Brown. I mean, John Brown is obviously in many ways the subject of this book, but he also does, he is a powerful personality, and in the scenes in which he is in, he takes over, and he is giving orders or giving speeches or praying forever, and it becomes about him in a lot of ways. But in this one section in which John Brown is absent and Onion is living basically functionally in an all-black society, an all-slave society, the many, many different ways that slaves had in those days of dealing with each other and getting along and fighting or not fighting or capitulating or not capitulating are really explored in a lot of extremely fascinating ways, I thought. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's a measure of the quality of this book that this section, which is absent the narrative line and the John Brown character, which is driving so much of the action, is maybe the most successful section in the book, or at least extremely memorable unto itself, right? right? Just a slight note of dissent. There were times when the picaresque 
quality of the book was frustrating as a reader because you know where it's going. At least, you know, I, I found my... You didn't my... like all those Don Quixote and digressions? Yeah. I mean, there were times when, when I did um, wish that the story was moving forward in a way that it wasn't. And maybe that's my weakness as a reader. But I just knowing that there was that narrative through line, I did think that the book changed once we got close to Harper's Ferry, which I'm sure was very deliberate on McBride's part. But these, these sort of long sections... They are very rich, and they do have these memorable characters, but you have to kind of take your mind away from where the narrative is ultimately going, in a sense. My defense would be that because we know the outcome of Harper's Ferry, I enjoyed having parts of the book where I didn't know what was going to happen. Huh. I knew that Harper's Ferry ends badly and John Brown gets hanged, <laughs> but I don't, I don't like know the details, and also I don't know what happens to this fictional character at Harper's Ferry. I didn't feel like this sort of overwhelming sense of, well, let's just get to it. I think that maybe that you did, David. I don't want to overstate it, but I also don't want to underplay the extent to which there were times when I picked up the novel, read a chapter or two, and then set it down. Yeah, feeling like oh, I'll come back to it later as impressed by it as I was, and as much as I loved the language, it wasn't a book that I picked up and never put down. I did, in fact, fall asleep on three consecutive nights trying to read this book. All right. I, <laughs> once I got into this book, was really into it and uh -huh. read it very quickly over a few days. And when did that happen in terms of... Probably like a hundred or so pages in, because I was having... I was wobbly a little in the beginning. And then... Once I really got with the voice of Onion, right. I stuck with it. For me, it was after Pikesville. Like, I recognize yeah. now how important and crucial and amazing those scenes in Pikesville were. But at the time, I did feel that sense of, where's John Brown? What's going on? Why is there no John Brown? Until I finally, like, I think at the moment of the hanging of the rebellious slaves, I thought, oh, okay, I've, I'm starting to understand why this is here. And then for, at that point, I was all in and I stopped dozing off. I mean, I think part of this is McBride's whole conceit, which is to make you see and care about everything through Onion's eyes. And if you're really absorbed in that character and compelled by what he, she is telling you, then you can... I wasn't even thinking about John Brown being mm. absent because I was just so curious about her or him. So that brings up actually my other big question about the book, which is that we haven't mentioned at all that there's a prologue in which we learn that the story we're about to read are these sort of conceit here is that these are papers that have been rediscovered. Right. They're an account. In that... Wilmington, Delaware, of yeah. all <laughs> places. Yes. That's, uh, Henry the Onion Shackelford, called The Onion, was a member of this congregation, and he gave this account to someone else who wrote it down, uh, as I understand it, if I'm remembering this correctly. Yep. And now, you know, we're now going to read that account. So in theory, this account could be quite unreliable. I think the way that the prologue functions is really is it, it gives McBride a kind of cover, a very, I think, canny and, and shrewd one, to then write about this event in the incredibly free and fluid and inventive way that he does. That said, I never distrusted Onion the whole way through. I never thought that The Onion was an unreliable narrator. And I don't feel like the book actually leads you to believe that he is either. No, I think I that's right. I agree. I also think the prologue is there for this little wonderful line, which is to tell us that Henry was tossed from the church in 1947 for, quote, scoundreling and funny touching a fast little something <laughs> named Peaches. And that's so great because it, it's in the humorous vein of the book, but it also, I held on to that through the whole book. I was like, okay, he's going to get to be a man and he's going to get to chase peaches someday. Right. <laughs> the various ways that James McBride just describes 
euphemisms for sex are amazing. Like when he talks about how that guy who keeps a bunch of Indian squaws for rootin' tootin' purposes. Yeah. And then there's the whole joke of the word trim that, you know, Henry's trying to get some oh, right. people to give him a ride to Hikesville. And he says, I'm really good at trimming. And he means giving someone a haircut because his dad <laughs> was a barber. And it turns out that to trim means something completely different. I have another question for you guys about the title, The Good Lord Bird. A feather from a good lord bird is given to Henry very early in this book by one of John Brown's sons, right? Yes. He keeps it and loses it and gets it back. And they actually see a good lord bird early in the book. And it's described as a large woodpecker, black and white, with just a little bit of red about him. And so it seems to me like this is the ivory-billed woodpecker, the fabled now lost, probably extinct, but sometimes seen way out in the wilderness, ivory-billed woodpeckers. Oh, I'm sure you're right, Dan. I wonder if they ever were in Kansas, where they're supposed to have been in this book. Well, I mean, they once spread basically across the entire southern United States before they were dehabitated into probable extinction. And so I don't know this for sure, but that is my hunch. And that, to me, was also a great sort of hidden touch of this book, that this extinct, probably extinct, but maybe still living artifact of 1800s America is like the sign of John Brown and the sign of the truth and the sign of the cause for this entire book. And I love that, although I can't say I can exactly say what I think it means. I just loved it as a resonance. What do you guys think? I love that idea. I didn't think of the ivory-billed woodpecker, but the mythical quality of that particular animal is very much in keeping with this book. I'm glad you brought it up, Dan, because I wondered about why it was used for the title. I mean, it's a great phrase, and it comes up throughout. But uh, there is this uh, description at the end about what the bird does, right, about gnawing on... That it finds a dead tree that is... stealing light and food from the rest of the forest and it chooses that tree and it pecks at it until it falls down so that the forest can flourish so to me the good lord bird is john brown right which you don't realize i think until the end because at the beginning uh, brown associates the good lord bird with the onion because they're both good luck omens right he says that the onion you know is this omen for him and he'll always uh, be watched over when she as he as Brown thinks Henry is a woman, as she is, is is always there. But then at the end, that description sounds a lot more like Brown. And in that sense, isn't it McBride saying thank you in some way to John Brown, the real person, that, okay, maybe you didn't really understand the Negro of the time, maybe you were misguided, but you tried to stand up for us in a way that no other white people did. So we kind of owe you a bit of gratitude for that. Yeah. yeah, I think ultimately it's, like I said before, I think that Brown seems very sympathetic by the end for all of the comic quality of this book. There's a respect for what he did and the fact that at the end he seems to know more than you thought before. It makes it seem like he's not just a, uh, you know, zealot. There's also this small... I think, turn of historical events where one of Brown's sons gets shot in the middle of the raid. And in real life, it took him some time to die. And he was in a lot of pain. And Brown apparently said to him something like, you know, well, you got to die like a man. And historically, that has played out as very cold hearted. But it's not in the book. In the book, it seems like Brown is basically trying to help him to death. And there's something loving and gentle about it. It's totally different rendition than the Brown of Cloud Splitter. So you've read Cloud Splitter, Emily? Yes, but a long time ago. So don't quiz me. Okay, I won't won't quiz (laughs) you. I like that these two novels 
both National Book Award winners, right? Didn't Cloud Splitter win the National Book Award too? I think that's right. I love that. That so now there's right there on the bookshelf. You have sort of these two opposite stories of John Brown, both of which I think are fascinating portraits of this time from two very different perspectives. So in the end, recommend all three of us. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Emily and David. Thank you for joining me for this conversation. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection, as I noted, is Mary McCarthy's classic novel, The Group. It's a story of eight Vassar graduates in New York in the 1930s that, of course, had mid-century American women asking, well, are you more of a Lakey, or are you more of a Dottie, or are you more of a K? Read the book or listen to it on Audible, and then join us for our discussion on February 7th. Once again, you can also buy tickets for our amazing live show, with Hugh Howie and the ghost of Kurt Vonnegut. It'll be February 27th in Seattle. You can buy tickets at slate.com slash seattleabc. I like how you've already decided the show is amazing, Dan. It's going to be amazing. I mean, when Kurt Vonnegut's <laughs> ghost shows up and flies in from the ceiling and settles down into a chair and talks with us, you don't want to That'll be that. amazing. You should fly to Seattle for it. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store. And hey, why not leave a comment while you're there? Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon and David Haglin, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.